BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is The Argument. This week, a new book on criminal justice reform. Well, if you lock up all these people, are we really going to be safer? What are we really doing here? Then, what would a better system look like? I'm actually fine with a 20-year cap on prison sentences. And finally, a recommendation. So you drink your coffee black, David? Criminal justice reform has quickly become a hot political topic, and it's unlike almost any other hot political topic because there are actually some areas of bipartisan agreement. President Trump recently signed a bill backed by both Democrats and Republicans that would make small changes to the federal system of criminal justice. You also have both libertarians and progressives supporting moves at the local level. Emily Bazelon is a writer for The New York Times Magazine, and she has a new book out called Charged, which focuses specifically on prosecutors. Michelle sat down with her to talk about the book. You'll hear that first. And then Michelle Ross and I come back to talk about the larger issue of criminal justice reform. Here are Michelle and Emily. So to start, you know, there's this moment in your book where a member, I think, of the Daily News editorial board tweets how bizarre it is to see DA candidates competing to see who can be softest on crime. Um, And I guess I'm hoping (laughs) that you can sort of help explain, like, how we got to that point. Yeah. So that um, tweet comes in the middle of the race for Brooklyn district attorney in 2017. And, And I think, like, you have to kind of go back to the 1970s when... You know, in the early 70s, the United States had the same kind of rate of incarceration as Scandinavia has today. And then we had a crime wave and we responded to it with these huge increases in sentencing laws and a lot of mandatory minimum sentences, which are important for my story because they give a lot of power to prosecutors. We incarcerated five times as many people. We got ourselves to this current prison population of 2.2 million. And we didn't notice very much that crime actually dropped a lot along the way and that the reasons crime rises or falls are not particularly tied to locking up lots more people. I think in the 80s and 90s, when people were passing these really tough laws, they were doing it in response to real fear and also very high profile, um, scary crimes that were committed. And it wasn't really thought through like, okay, well, if you lock up all these people, are we really going to be safer? What are we really doing here? What you see in the last five years or so is a lot of research starting to come out questioning whether locking lots of people up actually deters crime at the levels that we're doing it at, right? And so that, I think, has been one of the lessons that states and cities have started to learn. And then the other thing that's driving this conversation, well, I would say two things. One is the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, a really energized 
grassroots city by city effort to push back on the worst excesses of policing and of criminal justice. And then another thing are conservatives and libertarians who are concerned about cost. Like if we're spending all this money and we're not getting anything from it, what's the return on investment here? Can you talk a little bit about the specific role of prosecutors? Because one of the arguments you make in your book is that if you want to change this, you know, sort of mammoth system, the easiest entry point is to just is to get progressive prosecutors. Yeah. So in the 80s and 90s, when we were passing these stricter sentencing laws, we set these mandatory sentences for lots of crimes. And the thinking behind that was like, we want to make sure that judges really throw the book at people, that you can't have some judge just like treat people differently and be lenient. What we didn't really surface at the time is that if you take discretion away from judges, you give it to someone else. You give it to prosecutors because all of a sudden the charge that somebody faces determines the punishment that they're getting, right? So I did a lot of reporting in this gun court in Brooklyn. New York has mandatory sentences for gun possession. You have a loaded gun and they charge you with the maximum charge, you're going to be going to prison for a minimum of three and a half years. Doesn't matter if you have no criminal record. You could be in your house. That's the way the charge works. And so once the prosecutor brings that charge, somebody is going to prison, whatever the judge wants to see happen. I mean, I watched judges ask prosecutors to lower charges to misdemeanors for defendants they thought didn't deserve to go to prison. And the prosecutor said no. Then the answer was no. And one of the sort of interesting I don't even know if it's an irony, but it's interesting to see how New York's strict gun control laws, which, you know, I've always thought of as a progressive victory, have actually worked to worsen um, mass incarceration or worsen criminal justice abuses. Like, are those two things naturally intention? They don't have to be. But I think what happened in New York were these mandatory sentences for gun possession we were just talking about. And so, like, the question is, okay, if you want to reduce the rate of gun ownership and make it hard to get a permit, what's the penalty if you have a gun without a permit, right? And in New York, the penalty is that you go to prison, which is pretty distinctive. That's not like, you know, look, there are several states in the country where there is no such thing as an illegal gun. So I completely understand the um, importance and the impulse behind gun control. My question is, does sending everybody to prison who has a gun without a permit make sense? And why do people, particularly in the poor neighborhoods in Brooklyn and the Bronx, where this is pretty common, why do people have guns? And like, can we help them think through the circumstances of their lives that led them to this decision rather than just blaming them for it? So when I was interviewing lots and lots of teenagers and men in their 20s who were in gun court, they would say to me they had guns for protection. Well, what did they mean by that? What was behind all those decisions? I That I found really absorbing. And I try to unpack a lot of, of that in my book. And I think that you need to understand it in order to think through whether this mandatory prison sentence really makes sense. What do you think does make sense or what works in terms of getting guns off the streets and, you know, trying to crack down on unlicensed gun ownership without, you know, sort of dooming the most disenfranchised people in the city 
to these really life-ruining interactions with the criminal justice system. So I watched some teenagers go through a diversion program in Brooklyn where they would plead guilty. So they had a sentence, prison sentence, hanging over their heads. But then they got a second chance where they would work with a social worker over the course of the year. They had a bunch of rules to follow. The idea was to try to get them to, you know, reroute their lives. And so I follow one person, Kevin, particular in the book as he's going through this process. And, you know, And I think that second chance is really powerful. I think also it's really important when you're thinking about preventing crime and getting guns off the streets to think of all the solutions that have nothing to do with law enforcement. And I'm talking here about like there's research showing that when you increase the number of nonprofit groups working on health and other measures of public welfare, that that brings crime rates down. So, you know, like, for example, you have a vacant lot in a poor neighborhood and some people come in and they decide to turn it into a playground. Well, that's not something they're doing to bring the murder rate down. But then they have a playground where, like, kids are out there and then their parents are going to be watching them and or other folks. And so then you have foot traffic that goes up and the whole community can get safer and healthier. I think those kinds of interventions, we don't usually think of them as law enforcement or preventing crime, but they're really important to the picture um, in a way that doesn't get enough attention. Has the NRA ever intervened on behalf of these kids who are going to prison for owning a gun, which, as you said, is not a crime in huge parts of the country? Not on my watch in the Brooklyn gun court. I mean, (laughs) I can't speak for the NRA anywhere. But it was really striking, Michelle, to think about how there are certain images of young people with weapons that the NRA celebrates. When you're talking about poor black kids in Brooklyn, though, the NRA was nowhere to be found. Not Right. And those kids definitely kind of have guns for self-defense in the same way that I don't even know who that ridiculous girl is who parades around with – her rifle her college campuses. <laughs> yes. yeah. um, so I've never been able to figure out as I watch this issue. I mean, obviously, you have a lot of kind of elite Republican support for criminal justice reform, You know, some of it from a libertarian perspective. I mean, some of it, frankly, because there's a lot of Republican corruption and, you know, a lot of leaders on the Republican side seem to be people who have gone to prison and then ex- realized that it's terrible and counterproductive. But I'm wondering how much that filters down to the grassroots, right? I mean, it doesn't seem – although, you know, Donald Trump did sign criminal justice reform, it also doesn't seem that that's something that's super popular with the base of the Republican Party. Or am I wrong? Well, I'm not sure you're right about that. There are polls that suggest that the majority of Trump voters want to reduce the number of people in prison and jail, along with – Other people, too. And I do think, you know, you're seeing in places like Texas um, a real openness to decriminalizing marijuana, for example, or ending the practice of putting people in jail for unpaid traffic tickets. So these are bills that are up for debate in the Texas legislature right now, and they do have some Republican support. So I actually think this is one of those issues that is becoming more and more bipartisan. And, you know, you saw evidence for that with the passage of the First Step Act. So that is a small law in the scale of, like, really taking a big um, bite at mass incarceration. But it got a lot of attention. And then, strikingly to me, 
there is President Trump at the State of the Union celebrating the release of a drug offender from prison because of this law. Not the kind of image of a criminal or criminal justice that you expect Republicans or, frankly, Democratic candidates to be putting forward. So you write in your book, conservatives have traditionally used the position of DA as a springboard to higher office, Um, right? And I think not just conservatives, you know, Amy Klobuchar, Kamala Harris. But one of the really interesting things that's happened is that things that would have been a net plus probably 10 years ago have now become a net negative, at least in a Democratic primary. And so I'm wondering, how do you evaluate, for example, Kamala Harris, because it does seem to me unfair to judge her, given how quickly our thinking on all of this has changed and the political possibilities on all of this has changed. Well, I think that you're right about the changing standard. And another kind of element to add to this is that, you know, Kamala Harris is one of the first African-American women to be elected to statewide office in the country. And coming to that race when she ran for attorney general and then Senate as a former prosecutor, well, that's been a way that um, she and some other women have kind of shown that they're strong enough to be political leaders. So there's like a kind of irony to me here about now saying this is a net negative that when I think especially for women who are trying to prove themselves, um, a law enforcement background has been helpful. That said, I think the problem is that Kamala Harris claimed the mantle of progressive prosecutor for herself when her record doesn't reflect that in terms of how what that label has come to mean. And inside the criminal justice reform movement, that label is contested. You know, people who want progressive prosecutors to really take big steps to reduce mass incarceration, they don't want to dilute the meaning of a progressive prosecutor. And when you look back at Harris's record when she was DA in San Francisco, you know, she did some things. She called herself smart on crime, but she is really a kind of interim step here. So I don't think it's necessarily that her record as a prosecutor should be held against her in some, like, way that means she can't be the Democratic primary candidate. But I do think that for her to say she was a progressive prosecutor when her record then doesn't match up with what we think that term should mean now, that is a problem. And I haven't seen her really um, grapple with that. She wrote her, her first book, Smart on Crime, in 2009. Was she a progressive prosecutor according to what that term would have meant then? We didn't even really have that term then. Nobody (laughs) wanted to get anywhere near that term then. Like, it just wasn't a thing, right? So, you know, then I think you have to look at the specifics of Harris's record. And she did decide not to charge the death penalty in a big case in San Francisco where a police officer had been killed. She took a lot of heat for that. And she faced a huge backlash for that, right? Absolutely. But then after that happened, she really tried to um, reach out to law enforcement and, you know, not go too far to be seen as some like lefty radical. And so I'm sure you've seen these. There are videos of her circulating online where she talks about um, threatening parents with jail if their kids are truant. And those videos don't play very well in the current environment. She seems like a little gleeful about putting those parents in jail. And it all seems like out of sync with this moment of what we think progressive prosecutors should be doing. What are the implications of this movement for white collar crime? Because I think if you, you know, from a progressive point of view, if you're kind of analyzing the criminal justice system, 
the problem isn't that we've been too lenient with everyone, right? We've been extremely harsh on certain classes of people and extremely lenient on other classes of people. And so, you know, if you're looking for some sort of accountability for the financial crisis or for the, you know, orgy of corruption that takes place in the Trump administration, doesn't that imply that kind of more nonviolent criminals should be going to prison? Well, I mean, yes. But how about this? Like, we should have a kind of consistent, proportional, even-handed enforcement of law and order in this country, right? And so people who commit huge acts of fraud as white-collar criminals often don't go to jail at all, even though people who shoplift rather small sums of money do. So I feel like the problem there is one of proportionality and even-handedness and that you can think it is appropriate for white-collar defendants to be punished, including jail time, depending on the offense, and still argue that, like, in general, small-time thieves and burglars are being overpunished. I don't really see an inconsistency there. Like you said, this movement is relatively new, but based on what we've seen so far, is it possible to generalize about the results, both in terms of decarceration and in terms of public safety? Well, luckily, crime is still going down. And I think one challenge for this movement will be if it goes back up, can the leaders of it persuade people that that is not a reason to just like ratchet up sentences yet one more time? And I think also measures like community satisfaction and whether communities seem like they're healthier and in better shape, those will be if 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 prosecutors feel like they can contribute to that kind of increase in public welfare, that will be a plus for them politically. You know, so far, I think one thing that's been accomplished is that local voters and community organizers have poured themselves into some of these races in Philadelphia and Chicago and Boston, St. Louis. And these have been real tangible victories for them, which have shown people at large and their supporters that, like, local votes matter, right? Like, you're frustrated with President Trump or, you know, Washington, D.C. That can seem so insurmountable and far away and huge. Well, these are, like, small local races in which a relatively small number of votes can make a huge difference, can determine the outcome. The ACLU did a poll a couple of years ago. Only half of Americans even knew that they elected their district attorneys. And are there kind of marquee races coming up in 2020 with regard to prosecutors? Yeah, I would say the biggest one is in Los Angeles. Um, The district attorney there, Jackie Lacey, is not a progressive by any measure. And um, so that will be one to watch. That's something between like 10 and 12 million people live in Los Angeles County. So changing how the district attorney's office works there is a big deal. I mean, to me, the mo- the thing that I think is most kind of impactful from your book is the point that you just made, right? That if you feel like, you know, impotent and miserable and full of despair, here is this one sort of race that you can actually make like a huge difference in the way justice is done in this country. Yes, good. That's the thing I feel the most. I mean, to me, the most powerful line in the book is like they're about prosecutors. Their power is our power because we elect them. <laughs> So if all my book accomplishes is just like making people understand, hey, this is a race I can pay attention to and have an impact on, just like the race for mayor, like that's that's good. 
great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, it was a pleasure talking with you. Now we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com matter. That's netsuite.com matter. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. Okay, Michelle Ross and I are all now back together, and we're going to talk about criminal justice reform. Ross, why don't you go first? Sure. Um, So like a lot of conservatives, I have a broad sympathy for a lot of the work that's been done on criminal justice reform. Um, I think we have had an over-incarceration problem in this country, and that the move away from imprisonment for nonviolent offenses, drug offenses, and so on is probably a good thing. Um, But I also think this conversation and Emily's book gets us to a place where liberals and conservatives are likely to just disagree. And I guess I'll I'll start by offering a basic disagreement. I think Emily told a story early on in the conversation about the history of, of incarceration in the U.S. and said, look, we had this big crime wave, and then we sort of reflexively started putting people in prison, and putting people in prison doesn't actually have much of an effect on crime. And I'm really skeptical of that take. I think putting people in prison does have an effect on crime. Um, it's not the only thing that drove down the crime rate, and maybe it accounts for 20% of the decline in crime, but that's a huge number of crimes that don't happen because we lock people up. And I think if you look at the actual history of incarceration rates in the 60s and 70s. In fact, at the beginning of the crime rate, incarceration rates go down because, uh, frankly, (laughs) liberals were in charge of America's criminal justice system in various ways in that era. And they thought, as they still think, that there wasn't a link between incarceration and crime. But in fact, I think there was. And and, and part of what became mass incarceration was society playing catch-up by basically putting people back in jail who should have been in prison in the first place after a period when we weren't really locking up enough people and were reaping part of the crime wave because of it. Yeah, I see that critique. I mean, the way I think this through, there are hard questions and and easy questions. And the easy questions to me are, is there enough accountability for prosecutors? And the answer is absolutely not. When prosecutors make horrific mistakes that imprison innocent people, they tend not to get punished. They often just keep their jobs and people stay in prison. Is our bail system broken? It's completely broken. It's basically a big tax on poor people. And so I think there are a lot of things that we could clearly do to improve our criminal justice system, including not imprisoning people for nonviolent offenses. But then I think there are hard questions. And and 
Ross, I'm sympathetic with you that the idea that the great crime decline, which is a really big deal, that it's completely coincidental to the increase in imprisoning people, that strikes me as just a little bit too convenient. And it's the kind of thing that we would all love to believe because it doesn't bring any trade-offs. But I think there are actually hard questions about what is the right level of incarceration to keep crime down. Michelle, I'm curious about how you think about that trade-off. I mean, Emily's book talks about the fact that, yes, the hard questions for criminal justice reform aren't, you know, kind of what we do with nonviolent offenders or drug offenders. It's that if you want real criminal justice reform at a certain point, you have to think about what sort of punishments are appropriate for people who commit a violent crime and the extent to which we as a society believe they can be redeemed. If you think that locking people up has a measurable impact on the crime rate, and I'm willing to believe that that's true to some extent, but I also think you have to factor into that the impact that locking people up has on making them more. I think the, the, the criminal justice term is criminogenic, right? There's a ton of research about being in jail for a short time, even you know, simply because you've been arrested and you don't have bail and you're waiting for your trial, drastically increases your likelihood of committing crimes later. You know, never mind spending two years in prison on, for example, a gun charge, right? And so the way in which that then precipitates a cycle of crime and also, you know, destroys families in ways that kind of lead to further social breakdown I think you have to factor all of those things in. And so I understand what you're saying, that it's too tidy to say, you know, yes, locking people up does nothing to deter crime. But I think you also have to measure that with a realization that locking people up can itself foster crime. I think we can sort of maybe find some general agreement on the principle that the ideal criminal justice system would be able to distinguish between the people who are appearing in court or who are ending up in jail and so on for minor crimes where if you over-incarcerate, you will turn them into hardened criminals and people whose communities will be better off if they are removed from those communities for an extended period of time. Again, I think there's a lot of evidence that we have ended up erring too much on the side of putting people away for lesser offenses that, that do have the effect Michelle describes. At the same time, I mean, I'm when I look at like the average time served in prison for serious violent crimes for murder, robbery, assault, rape and sexual assault and so on, th you know, there's a broad range and there are undoubtedly lots of people who end up with sentences that are too long for the crimes they commit. But, you know, the average time served in prison for murder in the U.S. is about 13 or 14 years, according to the uh, Department of Justice statistics on state prison. When I look at that, that doesn't seem to me like a sort of out-of-control statistic, an average of 13 years for murder. I'm curious whether you guys' reaction to those statistics is the same as mine, or whether they—because some of this debate comes down to questions like, for instance, do you cap prison sentences at, say, 20 years, right? Like, is that is that a good idea? So, yeah, I'm curious about sort of where people ultimately come down on how long is a reasonable sentence for a violent offense. 
I mean, I'm surprised by those numbers. I'll admit it. I would have thought it was longer than that. And um, I agree with you. I don't read those numbers and say, my goodness, that's terrible. We need to reduce it. On the other hand, we have more than 2 million people living behind bars. So that means if we're not putting people away for sexual assault for long stretches of time, we're putting huge numbers of people away for other reasons, often nonviolent reasons. And it's just a reminder that this is a crisis. And then I guess the second thing I would say, and this is sort of philosophical, but I'm not saying 13 years in jail is enough for murder, but it's worth remembering 13 years in jail is a really long time. I mean, it is a life-defining sentence in many ways. Jails are horrific places. I've been in one only once in California when I was reporting a story. But I mean, they're basically fascist colonies. They're designed to be that way in which people live in cages and they live completely under the thumb of, of guards and are constantly humiliated. And So I do think, I'm not necessarily defending those numbers you just cited, Ross, but I think it's important to remember that a 10-year prison sentence, a 15-year prison sentence, that is an extreme measure of punishment. I'm actually fine with a 20-year cap on prison sentences um, for everybody except members of the Trump administration, but I... I'm not sure that that's like politically feasible in the near future. But I also think that the ground of criminal justice reform right now is not really rapists and murderers, because there's a huge middle ground between people who commit nonviolent offenses and people who take a life. And, you know, one of the characters in Emily Bazelon's book is this kid, Kevin, who's, you know, basically a good kid who gets in sort of like normal adolescent trouble. And one of the things that I think is challenging about her book is this idea that New York's very strict gun laws, which I, of course, support, and locking up kids who aren't really violent and aren't really threatening, but either have guns because they feel endangered in their own communities or because guns are this, you know, status symbol that they like to you know, pose with and be seen with and that the system is sort of incapable of distinguishing between cosplay gangsters and real gangsters. And so... There's like this whole huge middle ground of people who do something violent but are not kind of inherently violent people and who don't really pose a threat to the community. And what do we do with them? And we're sort of not really equipped to talk about mercy for them, right? I mean, there's a reason why the criminal justice conversation has defaulted to nonviolent people and and people who are locked up for basically drug offenses that I've probably committed 20 times in my life, um, right? Because that's easy. And I think that we do need to at least start by expanding our sense of kind of who deserves mercy to people who have done something that is like a little bit more socially destructive, but doesn't sort of completely rend the social fabric. And then, of course, there's the racial aspect to all this. And in her book, Emily Bazelon says that she thinks one day we will look back on mass incarceration with some of the similar ways that we now look back on slavery. And that's obviously a pretty extreme statement, but I'm sympathetic to it, both when you think about, as I was just saying, the horror of living in prison 
and the fact that it is so racially unequal, the fact that the idea of being part of the criminal justice system is the norm in many African-American communities. And when you combine those two, I really have become sympathetic to the argument that our colleague Michelle Alexander makes, that this is the new Jim Crow. It is a system of oppression that not coincidentally, by any means, is a defining crisis for the African-American community. I'm interested, Ross, as a criminal reform sympathetic conservative, whether there's any part of that case that you disagree with. I would challenge it a little bit on a couple of grounds. First, I think historically, if you look at the rise of, among other things, mandatory minimum sentencing, crack cocaine sentencing, a lot of the things that criminal justice reformers are understandably concerned about right now. These are policies that are supported, yes, by white Republican voting suburbanites. But in their genesis, they had a lot of support from middle class black Americans, um, including including black politicians in the 70s and 80s in periods when black communities were being absolutely ravaged by drugs and by the crime wave. It, that doesn't mean that they don't reflect, to some extent, the structural racism inherent in a society that had slavery and Jim Crow. But I think it should complicate a sort of easy narrative where it was just like, oh, you know, we locked these people up because we were racists. We, we locked people up in part because their own fellow citizens and neighbors felt like their communities were collapsing and supported the same, some of the same law and order policies that white Republicans support it. So that's one point. And then related to that, like one of the huge problems still in urban, heavily African-American communities, and there's a, a great book on this subject called Ghetto Side that I, I would recommend to anyone, is that far too many people in those communities still get away with murder. Murder clearance rates in inner city communities are really low relative to other parts of the country. And there's an, ex there's an argument that, and I think it's a plausible argument, that in some of those communities, they are effectively still under-policed, and that structural racism expresses itself not through mass incarceration, but through the fact that politicians and the country at large don't care enough about these communities to put adequate policing resources into them. In part, I think the solution to some crime problems is less incarceration and more police. But if you put more police in, you would get more people in jail, at least in the short term, more people in prison, excuse me, in the short term. And that too, I think, is part of the story here, that there are communities that, are, that do right now under-incarcerate because it's too easy to get away with murder in them. But those two things can be related. I mean, you can see the over-incarceration for either petty bullshit or sort of things that fall in the spectrum between, you know, kind of something that's completely harmless and something that's deadly. That can then contribute, I think, to these poor murder clearance rates and to basically people getting away with murder. The focus of criminal justice reform is not, you know, going easier on murderers. And I think there's a lot of research that one reason why people get away with murders in some of these communities that I would consider and I think activists would consider over-policed is because the over-policing has led to a complete breakdown of trust between the community and the police, right? So there's a reason why people won't talk to the police, cooperate with the police, call the police, why they don't see the police as their protectors. And so that ends up leading to kind of under-incarceration for very serious crimes, um, even as you have, you know, kind of too much policing of people's lives for relatively small things. 
I mean, I think I think that's totally plausible, but I think we also should be clear that finding the right balance is really challenging and that we have case studies. We've just had one over the last few years in Baltimore of what happens when police sort of simply retreat, right? That after... Right, but, no, after but nobody's the, saying that police should simply retreat. No, 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 no. Well, the criminal justice reformers aren't saying that exactly, but I'm just saying it's hard... It's it's hard. The criminal justice reformers had a reasonable complaint about how policing was carried out in Baltimore. But then after the Freddie Gray incident, you had a retreat from that kind of policing and other kinds of policing. And Baltimore has has sort of returned to the bad old days of incredibly high crime rates. And so clearly, I'm just saying clearly there has to be a better way than what existed prior to the Freddie Gray incident. But there is also a sense in which some of that policing that communities find heavy handed is itself keeping worse problems at bay. I mean, a counterexample is New York City, right? New York City, um, you know, enacted the sort of, um, quote-unquote, broken windows policing during um, Rudy Giuliani's administration, which basically said that you sort of have to, like, really focus on small violations of public order, so-called broken windows, because then that sort of sends a message that bigger violations won't be tolerated. You know, we had stop and frisk in New York. And when they did away with stop and frisk, there was a lot of fear mongering that this was going to bring back, you know, sort of battle days of New York City crime. And that hasn't happened. Yep. No, I think that's right. And I think that proves that there are some forms of aggressive policing that you can step back from. But New York does remain, as Emily's book attests, a place with, among other things, very, very aggressive treatment of offenses like gun possession, right? I mean, New York is a case study in how certain liberal goals on guns especially can be accomplished, but with a kind of brutality that liberals then ultimately recoil from. But I, but I agree that the stop and frisk example shows that you can pull back from certain aggressive forms of policing without turning into Baltimore, although New York is different from Baltimore in a lot of different ways. I want to end by circling back to the political part of the conversation, Michelle, that you and Emily had. I, you know, it's interesting. The three of us have argued a lot about this question of how broken the political system is. And Michelle and I tend to think it's more broken and Ross tends to think it's less broken. Th- this strikes me as an example in which it really is possible to make progress by just winning elections, which Ross is basically what you're always arguing those of us on the left need to do, just go win elections. And basically electing people who are much more open to a proportional criminal justice system. Right. And I mean, I think the case that her book makes is that it's very specifically a case of winning elections for prosecutor, right? You know, for DA. And that's, and you've seen in a lot of places, these sort of radical criminal justice reformers be elected to these roles that were formerly the um, province of kind of hardcore law and order people. And it makes a quick and immediate and sort of profound difference in the way that justice is administered. And so in that way, it's a reason for hope, right? Because the national system feels so stuck. And, you know, we have kind of a Justice Department that's increasingly on the side of, you know, outright fascism. But at the city and state level, you can you can change things. Well, and also there there is, in fact, a consensus on both parties manifest in the bill that Donald Trump himself signed that we have gone too far 
in incarcerating nonviolent offenders. And that consensus has had an impact, right? Like the U.S. incarceration rate is now at its lowest rate in in almost 20 years, I think. And it's not back down to where it was in the 1970s. I think the big the bigger question here is and, and we'll we will probably test this. This is just sort of how the ebb and flow of politics works is how far down can you drive it before you start getting real costs in terms of crime? And and my hope is that sort of the liberal, you know, the current liberal perspective um, is correct, and it you can drive it a lot further without having crime bounce back up. Um, but I, I just think there's a lot of uncertainty about that, and there is a sense in which we've what we've done is sort of the low, the sort of obvious low hanging fruit, and we're getting into harder cases. And as a way to close this segment, let me make a couple of recommendations for people who want to go deeper. First, we've been talking about Emily Bazelon's new book, Charged. I also mentioned our colleague Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, which is excellent, in which she talks about how she changed her own mind on this issue. And there are two podcasts I'd recommend, the second season of In the Dark, which talks about prosecutor misconduct in Mississippi, and the third season of Serial, which goes deep into the Cleveland criminal justice system. I'm listening to that right now, and and it's quite fascinating. And let me just, since I mentioned the book without mentioning the author, recommend again Ghetto Side by Jill Levy, who was a writer for the Los Angeles Times. Um, And it's a book that, again, as I suggested, it sort of cuts across liberal and conservative narratives and should complicate anyone's view of how urban policing works. And none of those count as our actual recommendations since they won't take your mind off politics. So we will be right back with our weekly recommendation. This week, it's my turn, and I have another beverage-related recommendation, but I promise it is not involved seltzer. So uh, a few months back, I noticed a new coffee chain here in Washington called Phil's, and my immediate reaction was skepticism because it is spelled Phil's with a Z, and to me, it just sort of looked like kind of a junky knockoff coffee chain. But as many people in California know, which is where it comes from, and maybe Chicago as well, where Phil's also is, it's not junky. It serves excellent coffee, and my recommendation this week has to do with its temperature. I've spent years frustrated by getting the perfect coffee temperature. I make coffee, it's too cold, I microwave it, it's too hot. Um, I basically spend kind of a ludicrous amount of time in the morning trying to adjust my coffee temperature. And I am recommending Phil's, even though the coffee is far too expensive, because they have managed to get the temperature of their coffee absolutely perfect. It is truly remarkable. You get a cup of coffee and it is that maximum heat without burning you. And so my recommendation is, if you're willing to spend $4 for a cup of coffee, and you're in California or Chicago or Washington, stop by Phil's, order a cup of coffee, and enjoy the rare, perfect temperature cup of coffee. You know, I am willing to spend $4 in a cup of coffee, but I am not really willing to countenance using Zs to make things plural. (laughs) Totally fair. So you drink your coffee black, David? I do not. Okay. Um, that uh, th- thank you for bringing up. That's right. They can deal with the twist. So I drink it with light cream, um, and uh, it is still the perfect temperature. I, we we may have to do a test where we take in thermometers and see do, do black light cream and normal cream all end up as the same temperature? Uh, how scientific is the process at Phil's? Okay, that is our show for this week. Thank you as always for listening. 
If you have thoughts or questions or ideas, leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a difference. This week's show is produced by Alex Laughlin and Winton Wong for Transmitter Media and edited by Lacey Roberts. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Ian Prasad Philbrick, and Francis Ying. Our theme was composed by Allison Layton Brown. We will see you back here next week. Although shop with a double P has a sort of old-fashioned ring. But it doesn't have a real old-fashioned ring. Ye old curiosity shop? No, no, you're right. I'm, a, I'm, against, I'm against all that completely. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done.